When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good morning, good evening, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for joining me tonight, and it's always with a heavy heart that we have to break news. Like the news I'm about to break, you may have seen a post on Facebook, but the paranormal community has lost a, a very special person, a giant in the paranormal community, and the world has lost a sweet and gentle soul. Of course, I'm talking about Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She passed away um, suddenly on Thursday, July 18th. She's written over 65 books in the paranormal. We've had her on the show many, many times. She's written about a wide range of topics from zombies to angels to ghosts and many more. We had Rosemary on the program several times, and each time we considered her appearance as one of the best shows we had done. In fact, I, I want to play a clip from one of the recent shows that she appeared on, um, as she did a pretty good job of summing up her work in this particular clip. And uh, it's time to go to our guest line, bring our guest for the evening in, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Rosemary is an author, a researcher, uh, over 60 books, I believe, to her credit. Rosemary, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you on the show. It's great to be back, JV. Happy holidays. Hey, happy holidays to you. It's good to talk with you. So, uh, since we had you on the show last, I mean, it was a while ago. I think it was actually pre-syndication when you were on. Um, What have you been up to? More of the same, paranormal investigation, <laughs> research, uh, probably written 10 books since I was yeah. last yeah, on I the, the air. I've always yeah. got multiple projects going. Oh, nice. Well, you're, you constantly, you're constantly writing new books, and it's like every time I turn around, you've got something different coming out, which is, is great, and you, you cover all aspects of the paranormal. I do. It's always been that way for me. From the very start of my interest in the paranormal and my writing career, I uh, discovered very early on that all of these things are interconnected, sometimes in strange ways. And so uh, I like to know as much about everything as I can. And uh, so I cast a very broad net when I uh, started uh, doing writing. And that's really paid off because um, as we get deeper into these subjects, uh, we realize how much they are interconnected. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Now you have the answers that you work so hard to find. Rest in peace. What a sweet, sweet lady and a very accomplished researcher and author. Uh, tonight we will have uh, a great show for you with Linda Godfrey joining us. Linda has been on the program before as well. She's the author of a new book called I Know What I Saw, and it investigates encounters with monsters from ancient mythology, folklore, and more contemporary urban legend. People are seeing things all of the time. Linda Godfrey has her finger on the pulse and she'll be talking about that tonight with us on Beyond Reality Radio. Quick look ahead. Tomorrow night, James Ricards joins us. He's an author and a financial forecaster. He's going to be talking about how you can prosper in the face of an impending financial crisis. And more and more people are talking about a recession at the very least, if not more. Um, some people think there might be an economic catastrophe right ahead of us. Uh, James Ricards will talk about that tomorrow night. Uh, Wednesday night, Jane, uh, Tom Carey and Don Schmidt will be with us. They're authors of a book called UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson. And they will present eyewitness accounts from what they consider to be the real Area 51. That's Wednesday night's program. Thanks for joining us. I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I would say I'm fresh back from uh, Pennhurst Paracon. Uh, which is at Pennhurst Asylum in Spring City, Pennsylvania. But I'm not fresh at all because it was so hot this weekend all across the country. It was unbelievable. And uh, in, in, in Pennhurst Paracon, it happened to be held outside in the courtyard of the Pennhurst Asylum under some tents. One of those tents happened to be black. Imagine a black tent in that blazing sun when the temperature itself was 98, 99 degrees. That was, it was quite difficult. Fortunately, they were able to pump in some, um, I don't even know how it worked, but some giant air conditioning units with big 
hoses coming into these tents to try to cool them down. It kept it bearable, but it was a tough weekend. And I came home and I, I felt like I had been uh, roasting in an oven all weekend and felt quite melted and uh, defeated and beaten up. And I'm trying to recover from that. It was a great event, however, and I uh, I applaud the the organizers of, of uh, Penhurst Paracon. Look forward to next year. Um, be sure to swing by our Facebook page uh, and give it a like. It's Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook. You can also stop by mine at JV Johnson, or you can find it by going to JVJ Paranormal and give that a like on Facebook. Also, swing by YouTube and search for JV Johnson on YouTube and subscribe to that channel. It's a great place to catch the program if you don't have a radio station in your area or you want to go back and check out some of the archives of past interviews, like the one we did with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, again, that's just JV Johnson on YouTube. Plus, there's a great chat room there, a lot of great people. Okay, so we're going to be talking about monsters tonight with Linda Godfrey, author and paranormal researcher, and we'll do that after the break. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. Welcome back to the show. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Write down the phone number for later in the program, 607-282-4497 or toll free at 844-687-7669. You can join our conversation, ask questions, engage uh, with our guest, Linda Godfrey. We're very, very excited to have Linda back on the program. Linda, of course, is an author, a paranormal researcher, her website is her name, lindagodfrey.com. She's written many books. Most recently, it's called I Know What I Saw. Linda, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks so much for having me again. You know, I know that um, you worked with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and I know that she actually wrote something for the jacket cover of this new book, I Know What I Saw. We lost a heavyweight in our community uh, last yeah. week, didn't we? I'm I'm just so sorry about it. Yeah, it was just a very big shock. I counted her as a good friend. We had worked on, there was a series of books that uh, she was the editor for, and I, I wrote three of the books in that series for her, and we got together at conferences, and, and I just thought the world of her. Yeah, she was so sweet, but so knowledgeable and so groundbreaking oh, yeah. as well. She really blazed a trail that many of us walk today. She did. She was a powerhouse. She really was, and just um, when you look at the number of books she's, you know, written, edited, or, or had a part in, I think it totals like sixty-five, which is crazy. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's just an amazing output, and you know, I think it's safe to say she was just dedicated to these topics, and you know, to helping people who um, who needed help with with dealing uh, with some of the things that uh, are, you know, things never go all like roses and daisies you're exploring the paranormal. So uh, she she helped a lot of people. She meant a lot to so many people. And I'm just very, very sorry that she's not here with us. She'll certainly be missed. You, on the other hand, have been very, very busy. Um, we know that you've been writing. We've got your new book, which was just released a few days ago. It's called I Know What I Saw. We're going to be talking about that. But in addition to writing, what else have you been up to? Well, I actually have been working on a documentary film with my son, who is a, a very talented videographer, about Chapter 11 in this book, because there was so much to that chapter that couldn't fit in the book and couldn't even fit in the long appendix that I added at the back of the book. It's about the spread of the mountain lion from where they've sort of been hiding out since they were almost exterminated in the early 1900s down in the southwestern desert areas. They're coming back. They're coming back east. And the thing is that um, there are also some others among them that aren't the usual tan color. They're what are supposed to be impossible black mystery panthers that are seen with them. And there's one area, happens to be in Wisconsin, which has an 18-mile radius of um, sightings that have occurred over the past several decades that total up to at least 150, the man who's been collecting them all. And I give him full credit. He's a former newspaper writer and editor, so he kind of knew everybody. And 
and um, he gives the total at over 150. And the most amazing thing is that in this area, at least, over half of those sightings are of black or melanistic um, big cats, and they're just not supposed to exist. So um, we've been working on getting the reports from many of these people, and they're really amazing um, diversity in, in the, the people that we've been talking to. We even have one woman who has a couple of different PhDs and who was a staff member at the really important, um, well, it was, it was in Florida, and it's what's called the Florida Panther Project, where their panther population or mountain lion population, more correctly, was thinning out. So they went to Texas, and they got some really pumped up, um, much heavier, bigger mountain lions, and then bred the two to sort of make a, a reserve, a, re, uh, a re reservoir of good mountain lion traits in Florida again. And uh, she was part of that, and here she gets her vacation home up in central Wisconsin and sees black mystery cats. And she saw a tan one, too, and she said, I... I am a person who knows my big cats. I, I know what they are. I've worked with them. I've been there. And I did not see a house cat or a skunk or, you know, or, right. or a deer or a small dog, which is the second part of this. It's very frustrating to all of the observers to be downplayed when they go to try and report it to the authorities. They're denied. They're made fun of. They're told, you know, things will happen if they, if they um, do something amazing like appear in my film. And it's interesting because that area actually has a mountain, a small mountain that you don't, wouldn't usually think of mountains being in Wisconsin, but this one just happens to be called Wildcat Mountain. And so our film is called Return to Wildcat Mountain. You know, you talking about people being frustrated by making these reports and not being believed, and then I look at the title of your new book, I Know What I Saw, and I can hear the frustration in those words uh, coming from some of those people and other people that have had sightings of whatever it happens to be and just not uh, being believed or taken serious, seriously. Is that where you got the title from? Yes, and there, there's even someone who um, utters that phrase, totally not thinking about my book, just you know, telling it like it is. He's a retired sheriff's deputy. He's one of the witnesses in the film. And I've had other people. There's a couple in the book. Um, it's just so frequently repeated because that's the reaction people get, no matter who they tell, whether it's authorities or their mom and dad or their wife or coworkers or whatever. Most of the time, they may tell one or two people, and then they just shut up about it because they don't want to um, have to defend themselves when they know what they saw. Um, but we even had one person who was threatened, who was wanting to go into law enforcement and had a sighting, and um, somebody told her that if she went forward with this, that she would not have a career in law enforcement. So it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's something that you really have to think about. And they have their reasons, too. You know, but there are so many pros and cons. There, people. Some people are afraid of the, to have the mountain lions around. Although, no one, no human has gotten hurt at all in the several decades they've been so prevalent around Hillsboro, Wisconsin, and other places. What you know? What um, is it? What is it about these cats? Because I know up here in the Northeast, um, we've had several reports, and now with Facebook and social media, you know, you get these pictures popping up occasionally, people saying, I saw this in my backyard, and, and yeah. in, these, in some cases it's been friends of mine up in rural upstate New York, but yet the authorities tend to deny their existence in upstate New York. Why is why would they deny it if people are making these reports, especially when it comes to something like these black cats, which so many people seem to have seen? Yeah, and that those they just deny out of hand. It's just like, no, there can't be any such thing. Right. You know, it must have been like a big dog or something. <laughs> and, you know, felines and canines are, are really quite unusual. Sometimes uh, some people believe it gets down to the usual culprit, which is the money, follow the money. Well, it does cost them money if something is declared an official species in the state, a, a, a breeding species, because then they have to fund studies of it. Um, they have to be collaring some of them. Um, they have to be uh, publishing about it, monitoring them, and and there are other aspects to to the the financial thing. So that that may be part of it. Um, you know, it almost seems though that they just they don't want people to know about the existence. It's easier if nobody knows. 
um, then if you know so, something is is seen and they have to answer to it, and of course there's um, you know restoration money that has to be paid if wildlife um, kill a, a domesticated animal, and in order for that to happen, the, the animal has to be recognized as being um, recognized in that state as as an actual animal. So that's another reason that they often don't have them. And you know, I think it's. As you, yeah, as you were explaining that to me, um, I was starting to think, wow, you just substitute UFO for uh, yeah. mountain lion in, the, in those phrases. They, if, they, if they acknowledge it, they're going to have to study it. They're going to have to um, accept it, you know, all those things. Um, this is not an uh, unusual or uncommon government trait. No, not at all. And you're right. Yeah, it, it, it shows up in many other um, types of uh, phenomena that are, that are being studied. And... Um, and there is, I suppose, the possibility of, of people being afraid, you know, they don't want to have their children out, their, their pets out, and that's actually a legitimate thing, although there are other things around. If you have mountain lions, you're going to have coyotes, yep. and a, a pack of coyotes can get really something much larger than um, any one of the animals you might think would get by itself. So so there are dangers when, you, when you're in er- areas with any sort of, of dense vegetation or there are sightings that you hear of, it's a good idea to always keep a children, excuse me, keep an, an eye on your children and pets anyway. Um, but I guess there, there probably is some justifiable thought as toward, you know, trying to keep people from panicking about it if, if they really think about how many are there. Now, the latest sighting that we had um, in Hillsborough was this last March, just this last March, only a couple months ago. Wow. and. It, a black one ran right across the backyard of one of the town's barbers. He has a, a home barber shop, actually. He was out on his back porch, and it was only about 20 feet from him. It was daylight. He had a marvelous look at it, and um, you know, he said, there are house cats around here, and, and I know the difference between a house cat and a mountain lion. And I actually uh, took my one of my trail cameras, cameras up there and left it, fastened so, so that we could see if anything else ran through, and we've been periodically putting it there and back. And we have gotten some great shots of one of the area house cats. Um, anything else show up in the camera? Um, nothing Nothing really of interest, just uh, the, the close-up, up-the-nose faces of people helping out that were uh, changing the, <laughs> the SD card and, and putting it back in. But um, the thing is, it's very helpful to get even, say, a house cat, in a certain location where you've got um, things like plants and of certain sizes that you can compare it to, because then if and when one does come through there, a, an actual large cat, we can say, no, no, here you can see, here's what the house cat looks like. Right. And then you have a, a basis of comparison, which is the, the thing that uh, in pictures that people send me, I often see very often is, is um, something that looks like it could be, an unknown creature, but there's just no, um, there's no ruler, there's no grassland, there's no, uh, you know, nothing nearby. You could, I mean, you could throw a crumpled dollar bill down next to it, and that would be something at least. But so right. many people just uh, forget that things like that are then left in sort of a vacuum, and you just can't say for sure how big they are. But right. it, you know, it, it was kind of fun to get the three, the three cat photos anyway. So, yeah, no point of reference, so you can't tell scale. Um, has anybody submitted or caught uh, one of these black cats in an image that is convincing? You know, there have been several. There was one um, right in the Hillsborough area where um, a young man and, and his girlfriend were out uh, in park, parking in, near some woods one day. There was a little pond there. They'd been fishing, and one of these big black mystery cats went through, and he got a few seconds of it. On video with his cell phone, it was actually put on an area um, newspaper station, a radio radio slash newspaper station, for a couple of weeks. And by the time I heard of it and was able to get there, it had disappeared. It was just gone. Um, nobody had it anymore. And that's what's happened. There have been several other photos from around that area that by the time anybody gets to put them in a place where they can be widely distributed, they're just, um, they just mysteriously disappear. That's awfully curious. 
Now, yeah. we're, we're talking about monsters tonight primarily, and uh, I know the story, but as our uh, audience has grown, not everybody knows the story, but you kind of got your start with a monster, didn't you? Yeah, um, my start down this pathway of life, for sure, it was like almost 27 years ago, and I was living in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and I was aspiring to be um, a cartoonist, either of just newspaper comic strips or editorial cartoons. Uh, my degree is actually in art education, and I've always loved humor with art. And so in order to get a start, I offered to do um, cartoons for free to the local um, Walworth County Week paper, county newspaper. Pub- it was then published twice a week. And they started actually paying me for it, and then when a reporter left, they offered me the job of reporter. And wouldn't you know that it was just about the time when people were starting to whisper to one another around Elkhorn, which is not a very big town, but it is right in the center of Walworth County. It's the county seat. And they were saying they had seen something that looked like a werewolf. I had tips from a couple of different people. And, uh, in fact, I just recently, uh, and there may be a picture of this in the Chicago Tribune because I was just interviewed, I had just recently found my first note that I ever wrote about the Beast of Bray Road where I just wrote, woman says her daughter saw werewolf on Bray Road, and there was a phone number to call. And I called it and um, further checked up with our county animal control officer. And I was right away working with him on some stories about a puppy mill, and there had been some kind of strange bags full of mutilated dogs that were found in a couple places around the county. That's grisly. Yeah, oh, it, it was, yeah. But so I was at his office, and I just uh, happened to think, well, maybe he would know. And I said, have you heard anything about these rumors of something that looks like a wolf standing up or running out on Bray Road? And he immediately pulled a manila file folder out of his desk drawer. And this is in his official you know, county office, by the way. And uh, he said, you mean this? And honest to goodness, the tab was uh, read werewolf on it. So that was pretty shocking to me. When you've got a county official with a manila file folder in his desk that says a werewolf, that's a story. I mean, (laughs) you have to write about that. Right. And he was very good about sharing the contacts with me. What he had in that folder was contacts and names of people who had been calling him and saying, I saw this thing. I don't know what it was, but if there was such a thing as a werewolf, that is what it looked like. And so I, when I had all those names, I was able to go and interview people, and I discovered they didn't seem like they were lying. They were all different ages and, and uh, genders and you know, very diverse group of people. Many of them seemed rather um, frightened yet by what they had seen, you know, and some weren't happy about it. A few said, well, I really wish I had never seen it. You know, people tease me about it. I sometimes have nightmares. So I knew that it was something... It was really affecting people that it had to be more than just a human in some kind of a, you know, get up like a, a dime store werewolf costume or something. So um, we decided to do the story and we interviewed the witnesses. And my idea was just to let them talk and tell their stories. And if nothing else, it would be um, a recording of what w- was sure to eventually turn into a local campfire story for one thing. Um, and if not, I thought at the very least, maybe there's some sort of wolf or dog that's um, sick or um, injured, so he has to be on his hind feet, and it's dangerous, and people should know about that. So when we ran it, that's all we expected from it. You know, I never thought that I would write anything else on it. And then we <laughs> it was like opening the floodgates, and we started getting letters and phone calls from people um, the local TV and radio shows and then the faraway TV and radio shows all came calling and wanting to write about it. And people were, try- were, co- were actually connecting with me without the benefit of an Internet because we didn't have right. what we have today in terms of email and Facebook and all that. You know, it was really simple and, and still very hard to get hold of people that way. So people were sitting down. They cared enough to write a longhand letter or type out a letter to let me know about it. And they were saying things like, I saw this. We live in Nebraska. You know, my aunt saw it up in New York. Um, It was all over the country, I realized, and other countries. I was getting letters saying, 
Yes, um, you know, our our son was in World War II, and and um, or probably more likely, our our father was in World War II, and he said he saw this thing in in France when he was behind lines, and it was out in the countryside. I had a couple like that, so I realized it was much larger phenomenon than I knew about, and. It made me feel, it still didn't make me feel like this was a career or anything like that because I was writing stories for that paper for 10 years in all different sorts of subject matter and enjoyed it. But I felt this was something special because people, there really wasn't anybody else collecting these things and people could at least write and tell me what they saw and I wouldn't say you're crazy. And many people to this day will say that, they'll end a letter with saying, I'm just glad I can tell it to someone who won't call me crazy. You know, and I say, well, you know, if there's if there's anything crazy, I've probably heard it by now, <laughs> and I'm certainly not going to start calling people that. So that's just sort of how it went until about ten years after I had another book that I wrote first, and then the Beast of Bray Road came out, and that really started the whole ball rolling again. And each book led to another book, and here I am, twenty seven years yeah. later, with. Uh, Eight, I think this is my 18th published book. Wow. Um, I just want to get something clear here because I know a little bit later we're going to be talking about things like dogmen. Um, mm-hmm. What My understanding of a werewolf is a, uh, a wolf creature that uh, it has been transformed from a human. Um, is right. that what we're talking about here? I don't think so. You know, I said right at the very beginning back then, you know, I don't believe this is your old um, model of a werewolf where you've got a human being that completely physically changes. You know, you think of the old um, uh, movies about werewolves where sure. you can see the the, uh, the knuckles are, are protruding and you can see the teeth growing and the hair is growing out of the pores and right. the face is distorting and the nose is lengthening, you know, all those camera tricks. I don't think that's at all what we're dealing with, and that's not what any of the witnesses saw either. They saw something that they described as standing upright, and looked like a large wolf or German shepherd with a bushy tail standing, running, or walking on its hind legs. That was the different thing about it. And that's not a supernatural act by any means. It's just something that is normally uncomfortable for animals. They don't do it unless they're motivated or trained or um, injured in some way. And so, you know, that alone wasn't by far not enough to make me think it was a werewolf. And and I still don't. There are other types of possible supernormal um, explanations or, or theories that don't involve that same exact type of uh, medieval or Hollywood werewolf either. You know, so there there are different types of, of uh, unusual canines to talk about. But especially that first group, and and most, I'd say probably ninety percent of the reports I receive are that same type that just look like a large wolf or German shepherd, often quite a bit larger. Um, and then being on its hind legs. We had a question from one of our chat room listeners from the UK asking if you've ever heard of any werewolf sightings in the UK. I know you mentioned France. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there are. there's a very long tradition of different types of large canines in, in the UK. Um, one of the typical names would be Old Shuck, S-H-U-C-K, um, and some other uh, whole variety of, of nicknames that they had. They were all around the the area there at, at one time and, and still are reported fairly often. Um, th- I don't think they're quite the same thing. Some of them seem more like phantom dogs. They're black fur. They'll have red glowing eyes rather than the normal canine eye shine color, which is kind of yellowish green to green that you'll see on the, the normal ones. But they have this great tradition of, Phantom dogs or large, strange dogs, um, often very oversized ones that are that portend death, and you can find this in in their literature. Um, there was one that invaded a, a church in one of the I can't remember the, the English town that it was, but it was a huge black dog that somehow got into a church and uh, you know attacked the people who were uh, hearing the sermon there, and, and there were quite a few fatalities. And that actually is is another good indicator. Um, the medieval and older style, quote unquote, werewolves, um, especially in France, killed a lot of livestock and a lot of people. Right. There was one that I think was there were like a hundred human or plus 
human deaths blamed, blamed on it. And the ones that are reported to me and that I even see on most other places, because there are other people now finally uh, taking reports of these things, they don't necessarily hurt any human or uh, some, more often dogs seem to be the things that they get or other other livestock, but they don't hurt, hurt humans. They'll be People will tell me they're being chased or um, they pop out of a, something pops out of a cornfield and they, they look and it's a huge wolf or, or dog-headed thing, and they're sure that it could get them if it wanted to, but at the last second it always just dives back into whatever cover there is, whether it's underbrush or um, you know, even a lake or river or something. So um, they're quite different to, to what I receive in reports from people, from mm. those older ideas. Linda, this is a particularly short segment, but I wanted to talk about the title of the book. I know what I saw is the main title. The subtitle, I guess you'd call it, is uh, Modern Day Encounters with Monsters of New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore. What are monsters by the definition uh, that we're using for this book? Well, monsters, you know, I, I tell people... To me, a monster is just any type of animal that we can't normally um, understand, um, even even if it's a known animal that's that's acting in unusual ways. And um, a monster can be anything from an oversized rat, such as a type a type that infested one uh, New York City building. I've got documented in one of my older books, or you know, to the full out um, uh, huge wolf-type thing with long fangs and that's behaving like a monster even if we don't know that that it isn't just a wolf. So it can be in the appearance. Um, lots of times it is in the, a legend. There will be a tale about uh, some horrific... Native Americans have some wonderful things uh, that just are some of the best monsters like the, the wind... Well, I shouldn't say best because they're really scary things and they're, they're believed in strongly, but... Um, the Wendigo, for instance, which can reach 22 feet in height, is generally something that takes over the heart of a human being that practices cannibalism, and then the cannibalism just gets much worse, and uh, they end up being these kind of tall, hairy ice monsters. Oof. There's just no other word for something like that than monster. Right. Um, does there have to be a perceived or an assumed or maybe an, an, a historic threat involved? Um, not necessarily. I mean, there are many things like our uh, dogmen that most, excuse me, that so many people are seeing today that the people are more threatened. Many of them tell me not because they feel that they're going to be eaten or mauled or anything like that, but because they recognize that they don't know what this thing is, that it's not a normal animal, that there's something about it that's different. Uh, with the dogmen, one thing they do, which is unusual besides the walking and running, is they will stare people in the eye and have almost a stare down. And it's quite frightening to people because they sometimes feel it's trying to impart a message to them. And the message is often threatening. It's like, don't come near me or I, I can jump on that's, your car, I could get you if I wanted, etc. That's kind of a canine feature anyway, isn't it? I mean, I, I know that dogs have this th- eye contact thing, which is a, is a system of dominance. They do, they do, and it may well have something to do with that, but when you're um, in a situation like that where you're kind of often alone on a dark, lonely road, and you see a creature like this, and it's staring you straight sure. in the eyes, yeah. um, and you start feeling these other possible messages, and I hear these from the, the same messages from people over and over and over again through the years. Many of them who've never talked to anyone before, they just happened to hear my voice on late-night radio and, and uh, found where to call me, and they've never talked to anyone else. You have to wonder, there, there's something to it, or they would not all be hearing, seeing, and experiencing uh, very similar things as they are. Coming up later in the week on the program, tomorrow night we've got James Rickards joining us. He's an author and a financial forecaster. We'll be talking about how to prosper in the face of an impending financial crisis, which many people think is just around the corner. Wednesday night's program, Tom Carey and Don Schmidt, authors of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, will be presenting eyewitness accounts from what they consider to be the real Area 51. Those are uh, great shows coming up here on Beyond Reality Radio. As always, don't forget that you can download the program through Apple 
podcasts or the Google Play podcasts. All you have to do is uh, go to your respective podcast source, and uh, you can find the show there. Hit subscribe. You get it downloaded to your phone automatically. It makes a great way to uh, make your morning commute a little bit quicker and more interesting, maybe. A lot of people are downloading the program. We appreciate you doing that. And if you do and you get a chance, please rate it for us. That helps the show get noticed and move to the top of the list when people do searches for those types of topics. Anyway, great show underway tonight. We're talking with Linda Gonfrey about her book, I Know What I Saw. Linda, the book talks about um, mythology, folklore, legend. How far back did you look, and uh, how far back do some of these stories go? Well, some of them go back to the very outer limits of human civilization. Uh, For instance, you hear these days about people seeing flying bat-like creatures with 20-foot wingspans, or large birds that size. Well, you go all the way back to the ancient Sumerians, one of the very earliest um, uh, city, city-dwelling city people, and they have uh, engravings and other pictorial things to show us their Pazuzu, which was one of their gods in their pantheon, and it looked exactly like these things that are being seen today. Now, most of our witnesses have not gone and sat and studied Sumerian art and architecture so that they know they've got this ancient, huge, crazy bird in their minds. You know, so it's like some people say, well, you know, these images are out there and your, your mind picks them up and then you just replay them. That really is not how psychology tells us things work. And um, they don't have these things in their minds because most of them haven't studied, you know, or, or even seen some of these very ancient things. You go to the Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, and one of the most mentioned in concurrence with these creatures is Anubis, and he was the, one of the, the gods of the dead. He had his own specific task to perform, and he was described as having a jackal head with very tall, pointy ears, exactly like witnesses describe today, uh, usually standing upright. And people will say to me, well, you know, it had this black, sleek fur, and the fur colors can differ, by the way, with these upright dogmen. But the, the Anubis ones will be said to have black, slick fur. And again, you go and you look at the, the ancient depictions in the hieroglyphics, and that's what Anubis looked like. And people will often even use that name. They'll say, it reminded me of... There, there was actually a um, children's cartoon show that had different Egyptian characters, and Anubis was one of the TV characters. So... That one did get a little bit more um, popular play, and you could perhaps say, well, more people have been exposed to that one, but not in the context that people are seeing these things. You know, And they can show up anywhere from a lonely road to, um, especially the Anubis types, seem likely to show up in people's bedrooms Oof. or just their homes, you know, which is unheard of in, in most of these sightings. Have these... Uh reports um have the creatures stayed the same but maybe the names have changed a little bit i, I mean is, is it is it pretty s- consistent throughout history yeah i think so you know because um even getting down to i had some people report seeing um centaurs they weren't all made directly to me but i had found some reports like that and they were supposed to be um man-headed horses or sort or, as we know them um Seen by the, uh, the the arch of by St. Louis on the Illinois side of it, oh, wow. and a couple of other places, and that's another thing that you know people just don't have that in their heads normally. That you could say they they knew about it and they turned it, it turned something else they saw into it in their minds, you know. But yeah, the but the uh, one point that I make is that these forms, do, these humanoid part animal, part human forms, do go back to ancient times unchanged in how people see them and describe them. Um, There's some difference in behavior often. For instance, you know, we have our dogmen that don't seem to attack and eat people like the the werewolf-like creatures in old France did, but um, we still recognize both of them as upright canines. So somehow either Jungian archetypes um, by the famous uh, psychologist Jung, um, who said that uh, we all carry these things called archetypes within us that are the images of certain classic figures that we don't really understand, but they're common to all humanity. Either it's that 
or people are actually just seeing these ancient things, and then we connect them with the true depictions of them later, and, and they say, yeah, that's what I saw. One of the most successful shows on television um, in the last few, few years was the Game of Thrones series on HBO. It ended uh, in May, I believe it was, with the final season airing. airing. And one of the pivotal creatures in that uh, series, in addition to dragons, uh, they had a dire wolf or a dire dog. Um, you're saying that people are actually seeing these creatures now. Or something very like them. You know, and dire dogs really haven't, or, or dire wolves, as they're usually called, um, they really haven't been extinct that long. 10,000 years, which isn't long for an extinct animal. And we've had other animals thought extinct longer than that that have shown up. Right. So I'm not altogether um, convinced that they are really totally extinct. But we do have thousands of their skeletons buried in the tar pits around Southern California to look at. So... We know pretty much what they looked like, and they really weren't quite as large as depicted in the Game of Thrones show. They were maybe, if you took um, a fairly large dog from these days, and or wolf, and added maybe up to 25% of body weight to it, then you would have about the size of a dire wolf. And the thing that was different about them was that they had broad heads with big teeth that were made for crunching bones, and, in fact, there is this uh, tale that I think Ivan Sanderson had, had told it, one of the earliest uh, cryptozoologists, about this place in up in Canada. It's called Nahani Valley, where people would come in there, and if they were brave enough to camp, sometimes something that could chomp off a whole head would come, and instead of dragging them out of their sleeping bag, it would just take the heads of Oof. these people. <laughs> it got the nickname of Headless Valley for that. And it sounds perfect, perfectly, um, perfectly set for something like a dire wolf. Well, the thing is, when I started getting reports way back in ninety one, ninety two of the upright canines, I also started getting reports of Bigfoot and of a different type of canine that was not walking on its leg, but what it impressed people for its sheer size. And people, I still get reports of these up to present day. And they use the same comparisons. They'll say either it looked like a mini horse or it looked like the size of a pony. And I'm talking about size. It looked like the size of a pony or um, some other large animal. A bull calf is the other one that I hear most often, which is way bigger than really wolves or dogs that we, that we know about today. And it often has sort of a, a primitive-looking ruff around the back of its neck, kind of like a hyena does. Sometimes it is reported as having shorter hind legs and longer front ones, just also somewhat similar to a hyena. And it also has this wider face, wider head. People will say its head looked too big for the rest of it, for, for the rest of its body, which is an unusual thing to say about a canine. And so I was collecting these, and the other disconcerting thing about them it made me really want to be correct before I did too much. And I, I put a few of these sprinkled into the books throughout the years. But they seem to really like to chase cars and bump into the cars. And some of them have actually, I've had one or two actually go into the ditch and had to get itself back out. And these things are riding al are running alongside the cars, um, keeping pace. And what people commonly tell me is that they'll look at their driver's side window and the shoulder of the animal is equal in height to the top of, to, or, well, it would be the, the bottom part of the, of the window that's, um, mm -hmm. you know, close, yeah, closest to opening. So anyway, those are pretty scary. And I've been finally um, achieving a, a pile of them that I thought I needed. There, there are enough that they really need to have their own um, name and their own designation so people can understand that we're talking about something different. It doesn't necessarily mean they're a, a different species of wolf, dog, dog man, or anything, just that they seem to have their own characteristics, which is the great size and this thing about chasing vehicles. Um, in a few cases, they're just seen sitting calmly and staring at people, which is um, eerie to them, too. Even even in uh, Bayview Park in Milwaukee, I had one, one sighting, and again, it, it's known by the huge size. And so I thought, well... We know what dire wolves look like, and these things are often said to have those large heads 
uh, which leads you to think they probably have very uh, bone-crunching teeth and the huge size, and but yet they don't all look exactly like wolves. Some of them will have ears that are more like puppy ears or a shorter snout, a different uh, te- curly texture to the fur, just like the variation that we have in modern dog breeds. And so I thought, well, why don't we call them dire dogs? Because dire means basically terrible, and uh, canine actually... The, the technical name is Dearest Canis, and the Canis or Canine can refer to a wolf or a dog. They're both that closely related. So I call them dire dogs, and they seem to me like a separate category of unknown canine creatures, um, and they're they're a little bit different from those Game of Thrones things, which were really imposing, and I loved seeing them. Yeah. In, in that show, yeah, they were they were really neat to see. So we're talking a lot about. Um um, canine creatures, uh, and from what I can tell, there's a there's a, a tendency to be somewhat menacing, but yet we don't have any real reports, at least modern reports, of people right. being injured or killed by any of these creatures. There are a couple of really epic, legendary um, tales out there of this happening, and um, I I've not ever been able to substantiate myself anything like corresponding death certificates or, um, you know, indications that the people involved were really dead, you know, or that they even existed in some cases. There's another one that, there's one that does have a really good um, background and and relatives that that claim it's true. But again, I I haven't done my own work on it, and it's sort of controversial, so I don't always put it in my books. But I know one person that covers it very well is Bart Nunnally. He's got a great book called Mysterious Kentucky. Um, so that would that would be a good place to, to go and look up that particular incident. But by and large, um, the ones that are reported to me don't have any sort of a, um, an injury at all other than one man who got kind of a gash on his side and flank because um, he met up with one on a trail in... Canada did not have um, firearms or anything like that with him, so he tried to kind of jump to the side, and the, the creature he thought was really just trying to get past him, but kind of went the, the wrong way and had its mouth open and grazed his side as it passed him, tore his shirt, and made kind of a big jagged wound, which he had to immediately go and get sewn up. He told them at the hospital that it was a bear, he said, mm. because he knew they would never believe what right. it really was. Right. If people have stories that they want to share with you, what's the best way for them to do that? You can go to lindagodfrey.com. And again, it's real easy. There's no WWs in it, just lindagodfrey.com. And select the About page from the tabs on the top of, of my blog. And on the About page, you'll find a box where you can uh, just you know send me an account of of the whole thing, or just ask me questions, or um, I can get back to you with my email if you'd rather just jot it there. But again, it's all at lindagodfrey.com, and that's on the About page. And as you've become a leading authority on these types of subjects, how frequently are you getting reports from people? Is that is it is it a daily occurrence for you? Um, sometimes, you know, it just kind of depends on the season and everything. I I would say I average one or two a week, which doesn't sound like a lot, but then you imagine how many weeks there are in a year, and sure. over the years, it, it really does add up. When you get a particularly uh, curious or interesting report, uh, do you ever get an opportunity to go out and investigate it yourself? Oh, yeah. I, I do that whenever possible. And, of course, I don't have the funding to go running off to, you know, Alaska or um, Texas, although I'd love to, but when I can get to one, um, I I do, and I like to be where the um, where the sighting took place, so I can take photos and, and get a sense for the land there, and look for footprints and uh, and other things, depending on what it is that we're um, seeking. But yeah, I spend a lot of time in the field, and and I like it. I, I enjoy being outdoors. It's one of the perks of the job. Is there any particular geography that it seems to have a higher concentration of any kind of report, regardless of what it is? And I, I mean, like, location. I don't, I don't mean t- topographical geography. I mean any particular area that has a uh, higher-than-average uh, number of reports. Yeah, well, the whole Great Lakes area seems to be particularly blessed. And I don't know if that's because of the great amount of fresh water, because 
Um, most of these creatures actually are seen more often near some type of water, especially fresh water, than anything else. And so here the Great Lakes have not just the lakes, the Great Lakes themselves, but all the rivers and tributaries and um, it leads to, like, right. Wisconsin being particularly blessed with lakes. Maybe that's why we have so many of these creatures. But um, right from the very beginning, I started putting, you know, pins into maps and kind of seeing where things led. And I noticed that there was this concentration kind of around the, the, the Great Lakes, and then there were sort of spurs that led out one. almost They look, they look almost like migratory routes coming out from the main um, bodies of sightings around the Great Lakes. There's a spur that goes down through um, Nebraska and down like toward Texas, that area. There's another one that goes um, south down through Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and another that heads eastward and ends up all the way up to uh, the top of New York State, as, as a matter of fact. As you uh, were gathering stories and researching for this particular book, what types were you looking for anything in particular, or was anything fair game? Well, anything is always fair game, but I do like it to sort of tie in and um, not be just a collection of scary stories. I like to be able to theorize and make connotations from one to the other. And what I was looking for, especially in this book, because of the title, Modern Day Encounters with Monsters of New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore was things that looked to me like they had some relationship either to ancient mythologies and religions or to some of these newer creature things that are, I think, many derived from urban legend like Slender Man. That one actually came from a, a website where people write in and tell their own horror stories and sometimes add on from one to another, and you get this kind of very creepy character, very um, tall, thin, uh, reminded me of Jack Skellington on the one uh, Disney movie, Halloween uh, cartoon Disney movie. Yeah. And, yeah, and just very odd, and that relates to some Native American legends of what they called stick people, which were tall, skinny people that um, generally didn't, didn't have a very good attitude <laughs> toward, toward uh, others. Uh, just to put it mildly. And so I wanted to see how things fit together, and if you could tell whether the the lore, the myth, the legend came first, or the creature came and then was talked about and generated the lore and the legend. And I, I found out there are connections, but it's really hard to sort it out and say definitively which came first in most cases. But it's still interesting to talk about, and I felt like I understood the roots of some of these things better than, than I had before I started. As you were uh, reading through reports and you were researching people's encounters, uh, did any did you come across anything that really just, I mean, you've looked at a lot of this stuff. So for you to be scared, that might be a stretch. But did anything send uh, an extraordinary number of shivers up and down your spine when you read it or encountered it? Yeah, there there was one. I think one of the one of the scariest areas is is not um, you know imagining what these animals themselves could do to a person, but what we do perhaps to some of the animals. It's the the hybridization that is supposed to be going on all over the world. People um, splicing and and slicing genes oh, yeah. to get different mm -hmm. genetic results. And there was uh, one man um, in Ohio, I believe it was, where. He used to go and run around this rubberized track that some some people will be familiar with them. They're made just for um, particular sport running, and usually it's, it's a track. And it's a rather than having to run on um, dry ground, you you get this nice kind of bouncy thing. And so he was he was going there one one time and uh, saw this group of people kind of coming at him from the other direction, and he he thought they seemed sort of strange. They had they were um, they were in two rows of two two rows of two so the sort of square formation they were jouncing along they seemed to have very um, youthful athletic bodies and uh, he was kind of just but they seemed odd you know and so he was kind of waiting to get a little closer so he could have a look and when they finally caught up to them what he discovered was one turned and looked at him and the face was the face of like a sixty to seventy year old man set on mm. this perhaps teenage-like body, and they were all the same. There were four 
very old-faced men with these very young bodies. And uh, he was pretty startled, to say the least. Um, he had another later happening when he saw two dogs, very large dogs, come trotting from the opposite direction toward him. And these things were odd because, unlike normal dogs, which if you've got a couple of dogs running around something like this, they'll be going and sniffing, stopping, looking and trotting in a, in a few steps this way and a few steps that way. Right. These things were just, were nothing like that. They were right on course. They were, their muscles were pointed ahead. They were in lockstep, even using the same paws at the same time as they went. And after, the first group of the uh, old-looking young bodies, old-head-looking young bodies, did scare him, and it still scares me, but when he saw those dogs, he really felt that there was something unusual going on in the area. And the thought that came to me about those men was that there have been people um, claiming that they can do head transplants. I have a quote from a Russian scientist that from uh, 2017, only a couple of years ago, where he said he had the means that he was essentially was saying he would do it when he could and that it was going to probably happen soon. Who knows? There are many, many places in the world where um, things are able to be done medically without being reported to the public at large. And I generally think that it's human nature that if there's something that's been stated and can be done and there are materials at hand for it and somebody is funded for it, it probably has been done or will be really soon. And that's a very scary thought. And it, it actually makes... Um, kind of strange sense with what he saw because if you um, say you, you were older and you had a disease and you wanted to get a new body for your head to be put onto, you would want a much younger one. And he said the, the thing about those um, men too is that they weren't walking gracefully. They were walking like they were trying to get their um, bodies in sync with their minds. They were kind of clumsy and and uh, you wouldn't think that any any men who went out and ran that track every day would be so clumsy on it. So it all made sense. But that, to me, is so super creepy. I can't even yes, it is. stand to think about it. It is. What's the connection between um, what, what, what I would call a, a kind of an innate fear of the forest for people? Um, you know, there are very few people who can stand being in a, in a forest at night by themselves particularly. But what's the, what's the correlation between our fear of the forest and the fact that many of these creatures seem to dwell in the forest? Well, you know, part of it may be ancient and instinctive where you, you kind of learn over time or your genes do um, that if it's, if it's dark and you don't have a good, good cover over you and, uh, you know, we kind of help, helpless little pink things without our guns and that sort of thing. If you were an ancient person and you had maybe your homemade stone tool and that was all between you and getting eaten by a bear, um, you know, you might want to stay out of the places where the bears go. And I, I think that's still probably a, a lot of it. Um, I myself have had a terrible experience with a bear in the woods and I kind of have developed bearophobia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> since then and, and don't like camping one swatted and scratched the tent right oh, by wow. my head oh, where, wow. <laughs> where I was yeah it was north of Minneapolis I'll ne- never forget that and um, they caught it wasn't just my imagination they caught it in a culvert tunnel uh, trap the next day with its cub it was a mother bear with its cub oh geez so oh. it yeah, it was actually truly dangerous so, yeah they don't get more dangerous than when they have a cub no and I'm much more afraid bears than I am of dogmen or Bigfoot or any of those mm-hmm. because almost none of the stories result in uh, anybody's death or, or maiming, whereas um, especially grizzly bears, you have to be really careful. I, I subscribed to uh, um, online outdoor news and there were three separate incidents where grizzly bears had to either be euthanized or moved because they were coming in to... Um, too close to and habitualizing, habitualizing where people lived. They are uh, very dangerous creatures, uh, there's no doubt. Um, you also uh, talked about a report of a, a Chilean cave creature. I haven't heard this one. What, what, is, what have people reported? Well, if you can picture Gollum from Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. 
that's what this thing most seems to resemble. And um, this man, his name is Mark Long, he, he actually r- uh, runs an adventure sort of um, business where he takes people on cave spelunking expeditions. And he was in a cave there with some people um, together on an adventure, which turned out to be quite an adventure because they noticed there was this smallish person it seemed to be tracking them around the cave. It, it was completely at home there. It was able to find little ledges to hide behind. They'd catch glimpses of it once in a while, so they knew it wasn't their imagination. And it just it looked so much like that little um, almost bald, web-footed sort of uh, golem type of thing. And it gets reported every now and then. It's not all that uncommon to receive reports of things that look like this, and they seem to be cave-dwelling um, animals, maybe they're maybe they're humanoids that um, just ended up finding they they like to be in caves and adapted more and more to them. It, it's hard to say, but um, there there are different types of of small humans that most people will think of. That recent um, few years ago, this uh, the remains were found of these people that lived in the Flores Islands, and there's and so the people are called. Um, Floresiensis, I think, is the, the actual name of them, but we know them by the term hobbits, right? Because they are so. They, it, I think technically they should have been golems because the hobbits weren't, you know, all bald and and cave dwelling. But uh, that's that's just a minor detail. But um, <laughs> these are seen quite frequently in different places, and there are also very mystical uh, small people, the Menehune in Hawaii. Um, one of my favorite cryptid, it's not really a cryptid, but, but sort of names ever, is the, the ones of Algonquian origin in the United States called the Pukwudgies. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and both of these, as well as similar little troll-like beings up in Scandinavia, they're all said to be part of nature. They're there all the time. They can materialize when they want to and that you have to treat them with respect and not look them in the eyes or make fun of them or you'll be sorry. They can do various things to, uh, from mild tricks to, you know, being really um, dangerous. I have to ask you, based on the description of the Chilean cave uh, creature, uh, do, have you seen that movie, The Descent? No, I haven't. Okay, it's it's quite disturbing. It's about four ladies who go spelunking or cave exploring. I, I'm not exactly sure which uh, term is proper, um, but they and they encounter some cave dwelling creatures that are seemingly humanoid. But anyway, I, I digress a little bit. That one haunts me a little bit, and I know I'll put it on my to see list. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and there's actually a, a sequel to it as well, but. Um, as you as you looked at uh, these stories and these reports, when we get into more modern things like Slender Man, um, how much of those types of things are pop culture driven versus uh, folklore or maybe actual sightings? Well, sometimes it's hard to tell, but I think I've kind of nailed down one way that's a good litmus test for me, and that's if you find stories that are maybe spread across several states or different parts of the country. And when you read them, you realize that each one refers to the exact same or very close to the, uh, to the exact same um, set of behaviors or actions. But the place is different. There are always minor variations for the place. Um, for instance, um, small people is another good category because there's one, one type of uh, story or legend about um, small people who worked for a circus um, or a fair in in the side uh, the side tent shows mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and then they find a place where they can retire when they're done uh, working for the circus or whatever, and they build little houses that are their size so they'll be more comfortable, and then they want their privacy so that usually if um, other people come trying to see them or make fun of them or whatever. They're punished, and there, there is one in Wisconsin on a road called Mystic Lake by Big Muskego Lake, not too far from Milwaukee, where there's supposed to be a colony of these people. In this case, they're called the Haunchies, um, and the legend is that a man comes out in a black truck with a rifle and shoots anybody who's trying to get in there, and if 
if the people persist, then the haunchies themselves will come running out of their cornfield um, planted right nearby with with all their implements like little uh, small-sized hoes and rakes and things like that to chase them away. Now, here's the tip-off. There's an almost identical colony said to live in New Jersey, and another one in Florida. They have different names, but it's the same story. They're supposed to be retired from circuses, and um, there's a, always a man, uh, a normal-sized man, who comes out and first tries to get them away, and they have the little houses. Mm. And, uh, you know, so this, to, to me, this sounds very urban legendy, except this one does have a kernel of truth in it because there are many circus people, former, former circus people, who would buy land in the places where they overwintered, and that is that happens to be the case in, in Wisconsin. In fact, there are two places like that, and in one of them, I know a person who saw one of the one of the people who retired into this colony, um, and she had um, fur all over her. Uh, her. She'd go barefoot, and, and my friend said she'd look look down at her feet and see these completely fur covered feet oh. with toenails that looked like claws. So. Um, that's that's one where there there there's always like a joker or a trickster element where you think you have these things figured out, and then you find out oh but no there's this other thing you know and right. maybe they are real. Linda, we're out of time. Um, the book is called "I Know What I Saw: Modern Day Encounters with Monsters of New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore." And where again can people get a hold of the book? Well, you can um, go. You can find a link at lindagodfrey.com where there's also a link to um, my film documentary trailer, um, which, again, is Return to Wildcat Mountain. And then any place where books are sold, brick and mortar, online, wherever you normally feel comfortable buying your books, um, if you can't get one, just please ask your local library to get them in for you. It's a great way to uh, see a lot of good books. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Can't wait to have you back again because you always have great things to talk about. Well, thank you so much for having me, and you have great questions. It makes it very easy to chat about all of these things. Her book is called I Know What I Saw. Check it out. There are links in the description of this uh, this program, too, if you uh, want a quick access to being able to pick up the book. So, uh, Onion, or Orion, what did you, uh, you do to keep cool this weekend? Because it was crazy hot. Oh, I, I slept in my Airbnb apartment where I have an air conditioner. I don't have one in my oh, house. Oh, seriously? <laughs> yep. So you have a little apartment. Is it in the house or is it a, just a... It's, it's a connected. It's, connected yeah, it's in the house, but separate entrance. So you went there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how anybody would do it without air conditioning with those temperatures. It's really the humidity more than anything else. Yeah. I said, do you know, $1,000 a night uh, for, for Baseball Hall of Fame induction weekend or air conditioning? You could have gone, like, to, uh, maybe not Oneonta, but somewhere an hour away and got in a hotel room for 40 bucks and just done that with an air conditioning could have done a lot of things <laughs> all right uh, tomorrow night we've got james ricards uh, is it ricards or rickards uh, rickards? rickards i'm not sure james rickards we're going to be talking about the impending financial crisis and how you can prosper if it happens that's tomorrow night's program right here beyond reality radio we'll catch you tomorrow Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Entercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.